Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. On this episode of Songcraft, we're joined by three-time Grammy nominee and two-time Americana Music Awards nominee, Allison Russell. She'll discuss her debut solo album, Outside Child, her long journey in the music industry leading to this moment, and her escape from childhood trauma to find resilience, joy, and healing through the art of music. Part one. Well, Scott, to let people in on sort of how our process works, um, we, you know, when we think about these we things... We have a that, process? Yeah, exactly. Quote, unquote, <laughs> process. You know, these things that we discuss and that we chop up at the beginning of episodes, um, you know, there's not like a, a real schedule for what we're going to talk about. This is sort of <laughs> come up and be like, hey, dude, I've been thinking about this. Yeah, right? to say the least, I would, I would say there is not a calendar with topics on it. Totally. So th- <laughs> the other day, I'm driving down the road and a song comes on the radio and I thought, God, this song is terrible. And I turned it up. <laughs> I just, I love it. I, like I, to like hate listen to it? Or? No. Okay. To so love you recognize it. it's not, yeah. it's not good, but you love it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then when I, when I got home, I, I pulled over and texted you and I said, I, I, I want to talk about this. I want to know what's the worst song you love. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> because it's a thing. I mean, we, we are connoisseurs of great songs here. Um, I like to think that we try, you know, both of us in our lives to have tried to make great songs. Right. Um, and I don't know if that's like a, a chef or like some kind of foodie type person just occasionally like to slum it at Taco Bell. I don't know. <laughs> or, or do chefs not like to eat at Taco Bell? I feel like every song I love should be good, but it's just not the case. Right. So I'm driving down the road and Lick It Up from Kiss <laughs> comes on the radio. Right. And what station with, were you listening to? Uh, KLOS. Okay. Uh, classic rock here in LA. And, right. And uh, I just reflexively turned it up about as loud as I could and rolled the windows and lick it up. And I was just like listening to it. I was like, this song is terrible. Right, right. It's objectively terrible. <laughs> and I make no apologies right. for loving the song. Hmm. So, I, you know, you're a human being. I, yes. I have to assume that somewhere underneath your, your veneer... <laughs> That there is some guilty pleasure for you as well. A, a, a song that you know is terrible, but you love it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I would say that it's hard to, when you talk about like songs that we like, if, a, if there's a song that I think as humans, if we like a song, we find a reason to convince ourselves that it's good, right? Sure. So it's kind of hard to be objective about something that you have kind of a visceral reaction to. Um, but... Uh, Talk Dirty to Me by Poison uh, is, that's my jam. Yeah. I, uh, I will not make any kind of argument that is a good song. Right. Um, but I like that song. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like the little stop when it goes, Talk Dirty to Me. And it's got the, yeah. Yeah. That I'm in. But that's not in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't think something that people would look at as a, a great artistic work. No, it, but I think that there's a thing, you know, I've always looked at Poison as a little bit of an offshoot of Kiss. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's, it's a little bit on, uh, you know, from, from the same family tree. It's, it's, it's part of the same tradition in a way. And I think that Every Rose has its thorn. 
uh, is a song by Poison that some people would look at and consider a bit more of a serious song, but I think that is a lesser song because it thinks it's a greater song. It, totally. <laughs> what a song is trying to be yeah. has something to do with, with how I perceive it, at least. And, you know, hair metal definitely comes from a tradition of like, is the song really the thing? Is that, right. you know, if you look at Poison, you go, are these guys really trying to put out great songs? <laughs> <laughs> right. Or are they trying to? You know, maybe we'll get you know Brett it's a Michaels means to a party. Yeah, maybe we'll get Brett Michaels and CC Deville on here, and, and we'll ask. Yeah. Um, but uh, even if you look back to a band like ACDC and say, "Are those great songs?" Right. Well, are they amazing songs? Do I love those songs? Yeah. But I mean, if you want to, if you want to like boil down the lyric, is it going to stand up to Bob Dylan? No, it's not. Right. Right. Um, but again, I don't think it's intended to. But then again, Bob Dylan never wrote like a riff as great as Hell's Bells. Exactly. So, you know, it, it kind of comes down to the thing we've talked about before of like, what is a song? And, yeah. and I've kind of made the argument like, I feel like if you can get it across on an acoustic piano or an acoustic guitar, then it's probably a great song versus a great record. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I don't know if I would like die on that hill, but I still kind of revert, I think to that for, for shorthand, but then you get into riffs like guitar riffs, uh, you know, that, that straddles the line between a record and a, a performance sure. that you could give. And, um, yeah, so I think if you're just talking lyrically, there's a lot of hair metal that's like cringeworthy. But if you talk about like the structure and the riffs, there's you know there's some great stuff. Well, yeah, I mean it can't all be about lyric because you look at a song like Jessica from Allman Brothers Band, right? Great song, <laughs> right. doesn't have a single word in it, right? Right. You know, yeah. And it's all riffs and it's all licks and solos and everything, but yeah. it's it's a great song, right? Um, yeah, I agree with that. So th this is where this gets difficult because it's easy to say okay that you know as much as i like kiss and i did kiss quite a bit yeah but you can also say yeah well kiss is not what you you don't look to kiss for great songs yeah you the look whole thing is a cartoon being kiss right yeah but at times you can look at somebody who is known for great songs yeah and who's known in a great as a great writer and known as a great artist and still point to a song and say i don't think that's a great song and i'm gonna do this with marvin gay oh interesting i'm gonna tell you that i don't think sexual healing is a great song mm. Did it might you, not even be a good song. Did you experience some kind of disappointment, a life experience around this song? <laughs> or uh... It's getting a little too close to home, man. <laughs> no, I just, like, you know, if you look at the lyrics straight down, like, there are times I listen to it, and I, and I dig sexual healing. Again, right. that's what this conversation is about. It's about right. songs that I love yeah. that I can say I don't think that's a good song. I love sexual healing. Yeah. The song, too. Um, <laughs> but it's, I, a, it's a great groove. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, a totally it's a great, great record. And, and it was... It, very kind of indicative of where Marvin was at. It was kind of pioneering in terms of the sound that he made up to that point. It was kind of embracing, you know, the technology of the moment with soul music. Yeah. But man, some of those lyrics, I mean, give me just a second. I've got a couple of these lyrics right here. <laughs> As one does. Yeah. I've written these down on a piece of paper. Let me look wallet. at my inner forearm where they're tattooed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ooh, baby. Now let's get down tonight. Ooh, baby. I'm hot. Just like an oven. I need some loving. <laughs> and baby, I can't hold it much longer. It's getting stronger and stronger. Again, is, is it getting warm in here? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm not trying to speak ill of Marvin Gaye, right? Or you know, right. Whatever. But I, I'm just telling you as a as someone who analyzes songs that I don't think that's a great lyric. I think in terms of what Marvin Gaye was trying to accomplish there, let's get it on. Uh, does it much better? I think that's yeah. a, a stronger song. This is almost like a uh, an updated version in a way right. for for the next. Uh, you know, the next decade or whatever. Um, but no, I can see, and, and I definitely agree with you that that's one of those where can you really make an argument that it's a great song? 
No. Right. Do we like it? And we're n- in no way ever going to, you know, turn it off if it comes on radio. Right. Like, obviously, like, it's great in that respect. So right. it, it elicits a great reaction as a great record. But, I mean, I, th- I would say that some of the Stevie Wonder stuff um, would fall into that same category. Stevie played fast and loose with lyrics every now and then. Yeah. You know, with <laughs> rhymes. And I, now, I, to go back to something you said in terms of, like, let's get it on and sexual healing and what their intent was and what Marvin set out to do with the song. I, if he were here, I'd probably, he'd probably tell you sexual healing worked just fine as, <laughs> as far as what he intended the song to do. Goal. Yeah, I'm sure right. it achieved its goal right. numerous times right. for Marvin. <laughs> Uh, but, I, you know, I think of uh, w- one of the things that really bothers me lyrically is like when people swap syntax. Oh, Stevie. Uh, and Stevie does that. 100%. You know, wondering for Christmas what would, what be, would my be my toy. toy. Yeah. You know, like no one would say that. Right. And, and it's I like think Yoda. That, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I think that, that when people start doing that thing where they have to do kind of gymnastics to, right. to make a lyric work. Uh, but again... I mean, wait, what song is that? That's uh, I Wish. Yeah, I Wish, which is a great song, uh, which suffers, unfortunately, from some bad lines. But sure. um, yeah, I mean, Stevie's a genius and right. one of the, probably one of the greatest songwriters uh, in American history. Um, but yeah, there's some of that stuff. If you're like, well, if I'm really going to be objective right now right. and really look which at is, this. Which is our uh, quote unquote job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> job. Our self-appointed meaning, job. You know, we don't get paid, but we get a right. stipend, which is like money, but less. <laughs> Uh, from each other (laughs) either way i'm I'm glad i got that off my chest (laughs) i'm I'm glad you could too um talking about the idea of like a great groove becoming a great song uh in my mind the uh one of the greatest songs of all time that really when you break it down is all about the groove Mm. it's all about the vibe it's not about the lyrics is mohair sam so good and uh that's a song that was written by Dallas Frazier, who was our guest on the third episode of Songcraft. So that's going way back. It's also playing on the jukebox the day that the Beatles met Elvis. Is that true? And Elvis was apparently absentmindedly playing the bass along to Mohair Sam hmm. when the Beatles came into his house. So there you go. And, and that's a topic for another uh, part one. Was Elvis one of the greatest bassists of all time? Um, <laughs> uh but Dallas Frazier was, um, yeah, he, he, he did one of our very earliest episodes here at Songcraft um, and uh, passed away yeah. just a couple of days ago. And um, what a loss to the songwriting world. Yeah. I mean, you know, from There Goes My Everything to Elvira, which he originally recorded, but the Oak Ridge Boys had a huge hit with, to songs um, like Beneath Still Waters that Emilio Harris had a hit with, If My Heart Had Windows. He had a ton of George Jones Wearing that love don't look. Wearing that love don't look. And and actually one of my favorite Dallas Frazier songs, another one that Elvis cut is True Love Travels on a Gravel Mm -hmm. Road, uh, which Elvis did, um, you know, on his great late 60s Memphis sessions. Um, But there's also a version of that song by Percy Sledge that I think is really cool. Um, But anyway, Dallas was a guy who knew how to take a great groove. Uh, Alley Oop being the probably yeah. earliest yeah. example of uh, of success for him as a songwriter, or Elvira, you know, or Mohair Sam. Those are all songs that are all about that groove. But then you look at a song like Beneath Still Waters or Fourteen Carat Mind. Like he also knew how to plumb the depths of emotion lyrically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, he he was um, you know uh, I'd say he and I were friendly and mm-hmm. we weren't super close, but I used to he took me out to to a meal a couple times when I was visiting Nashville over the years, and one memorable night we went to the Grand Ole Opry together. Uh, I don't 
remember exactly why we did that now. Uh, but I remember we went to the but Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, I mean, why not? And uh, we were just kind of going around backstage and like talking to people, and everybody was like high fiving Dallas and giving him handshakes and being like, "Hey, man, you wrote some of the greatest songs ever." So we got back in the car afterwards, and he's like, "You know, that's the first time I've been to the Opry in 20 years." Wow. And I was like, "Wow!" I mean, he was like everyone greeted him as if he were just part of the scenery, yeah. you know? And he was because his songs were, I mean, that guy, there was probably a Dallas Frazier song played at the Grand Ole Opry, you know, at least a couple times a month yeah. since, you know, the sixties. Um, he's just such a presence and such a nice, humble man. I used to call him, uh, you know, folks who know me know I do a lot of research about uh, the history of country music in Bakersfield. Dallas came from Bakersfield and I used mm. to call him all the time to ask him if he remembered this or that about some super obscure record, and he never did. Uh, and <laughs> then we always had a wonderful conversation. About like, something else. About yeah. something else. Like he was, uh, you know, he had, he had left music at one point to become a pastor. He had a very deep faith, uh, and then he kind of came back to writing music later in life. And we used to have really interesting conversations about music and theology and, yeah. you know, just a, a very kind, unassuming, humble man. And, you know, so personally, I'm I'm bummed to, to see him go. And uh, But what a body of work. Well, you know, and I, I didn't know him nearly as well as you did. And my, my one interaction was the time that we interviewed him. But if, if you go back and listen, uh, that's one of our first two or three, I think. Yeah, it's number three, yeah. And you talk about two guys that did not know what we were doing <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And, and it was like and evident. Still, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was evident to Dallas that we didn't know what we were doing. We, yeah. we were somehow routing the phone to some handheld recorder. Yeah, we were in separate was, rooms. Yeah, at the same place. Yeah. It was super awkward. And <laughs> even the way we sort of like went through the questions was all just kind of like halting and, yeah. you know, trying to figure our way around it. And he was incredibly gracious mm -hmm. with, you know, stories he's probably told a million times uh, and us kind of awkwardly trying to get into them. And it was uh, honestly, for me, it was one of the first times that I felt encouraged about this podcast because, yeah. you know, knowing that someone of his stature and his experience was willing to talk to us and willing to be so cool about it. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe this, maybe this thing can work. Yeah, maybe um, there's something here. We didn't make him mad. <laughs> <laughs> we um, didn't alienate him, so yeah. surely won't alienate anyone else. How wrong we were. Yeah, yeah, how wrong. <laughs> um, but what, what a great, what a great writer and a great man and, and yeah. a great loss. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Grand Ole Opry, we have um, a guest on today's show who has performed on the Opry herself. I'm talking, of course, about Allison Russell. And um, we, on our last episode, talked about um, Schmigadoon. We talked to Cinco Paul, who created and wrote that show. And if you skipped that one because you're like, I haven't seen that show, I encourage you to go back and listen to yeah. it. There's a lot of great, timeless songwriting talk in there. Yeah, and um, I mean, I'm still a part of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're so, there. You yeah. get to hear Paul, yeah. and he's charming. It's worth so, something. Uh, absolutely. Um, but at the beginning of that episode, we talked about the fact that I had stumbled on the show, hmm. Schmigadoon, completely by accident. Um, and with Allison Russell, I was in Nashville last fall and I saw her perform at the Americana uh, Music Awards and ha was not familiar with her. Uh, she came out on stage. She had an interesting lineup. It was like her and a tambourine and a cello player and an electric guitar player. No drums. Um, captivating. And I was like, whoa, who is this? I'm really digging this. Um, then uh, a couple months later, I went to see Lake Street Dive here in L.A. at the Wiltern Theater. And who's opening but Allison Russell, which hmm. I didn't have any idea when I got the tickets. I don't even think I knew who was opening until I got there. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it's interesting that we happen to have two episodes here that are people that I happen to just 
delightfully stumble upon, which yeah. is so rare. And we talked about this uh, on that last episode that so much of our music comes from somebody saying, hey, go check this out or some playlist serves it up to you yeah. or it's kind of put in front of your face in some calculated way mm-hmm. that when you accidentally find something that you like, it's outside like, the algorithm. Yeah, right. Somehow. I, yeah, I've, I slipped out of the matrix for a minute yeah. and I just discovered some some cool music. So it was fun to talk to to Allison. She is up for three Grammys this year, which are her first three Grammy nominations. Cinco Paul, who was on last episode, uh, is up for his first Grammy nomination this year. So if anyone uh, out there is trying to get a Grammy nomination, you should probably come on our show. Yeah. It seems to be, you know, the, the winning combination. Yeah. And, and it may be the closest we ever get to actually <laughs> winning Grammy. Yeah. It's, it's proximity. Not, it's uh, yeah, that's that, that <laughs> that's going to keep slipping through the old fingers there like like sand. Part two. Canadian-born singer-songwriter Alison Russell released her debut solo album Outside Child in 2021, but has been part of the music world for many years. She formed the band Poe Girl with Trisha Klein of the Be Good Tanyas in 2003, before launching the duo Birds of Chicago with her partner JT Nero in 2012. In 2018, she joined the musical collective Our Native Daughters, which also includes Rhiannon Giddens, Layla McCalla, and Amethyst Kia. Outside Child is a highly personal album chronicling Russell's formative experiences as a survivor of physical and sexual abuse while highlighting themes of hopefulness and resilience that have resonated with fans and critics. The project earned a Grammy nomination for Best Americana Album, while the single Night Flyer earned Allison nominations for Best American Roots Performance and Best American Roots Song. Additionally, she has been nominated for four Canadian Folk Music Awards, two Americana Music Awards, and has performed on stages ranging from the Grand Ole Opry to the National Museum of African American Music to Jimmy Kimmel Live alongside Brandy Carlisle. Allison recently inked a deal with Flatiron Books, a division of Macmillan, which will release her forthcoming memoir. Allison, welcome to Songcraft. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here with you all. It's great to, to speak with you. Um, you know, I have to let our listeners know that um, we, we have a lot of different reasons for reaching out to folks who uh, have been on this podcast. And um, I just recently saw you perform a couple of times uh, live within the last few months and was absolutely uh, blown away and had to find out more. So it's, it's really cool. Uh, you know, I feel like we don't have as many opportunities as we once did to just organically discover new artists and new writers that, uh, that we're excited about. So it's very cool to, um, have the chance to pick your brain a little bit, having recently, uh, been introduced to your music by hearing you do it live. So, um, the song that that I heard you first perform, uh, which was on the Americana Music Awards in Nashville, um, was Night Flyer. Street line, I'm suffocating summer For me, that song has since become 
uh, one of my favorites of the year. Um, and I'd love to just hear a bit about uh, the the initial um, spark that created that song and, and how that song was written and, and developed and, and translated from, you know, being a song to also a great record, a great sounding record. Uh, well, I thank you so much for listening and for liking the song in the first place. That That song is actually really important to me because it it sort of represents the first time I stepped into trying to kind of look at my life as an arc and understanding that you know I mean my particular history was was sort of um, a very broken childhood and early childhood abuse and pretty abusive situation for the first 15 not pretty a, a severely abusive situation for the first 15 years of my life and I ran away from home at 15 and music found me and saved me. And so song craft is really, really important to me. And the first song that saved my life was a Tracy Chapman song called Behind the Wall. Hmm. And I just, you know, songs are really important to me. And I've become a mother in the last, my daughter's seven and three quarters, as she would tell you, Ida, <laughs> Ida Maeve. And she, when she was born, um, I really, was overwhelmed. I fell silent for a while because I think just the enormity of the responsibility of motherhood and of potentially becoming an ancestor, you know, felt just, it felt overwhelming. And suddenly I understood my connection to kind of a long unbroken line of both survivors and also unfortunately intergenerational trauma, but, but the other side of that coin, intergenerational sort of resilience and hope and creativity and using music as a lifeline uh, that has been just sort of a through line within the, the lineage of the women in my family. And I think that with the song Night Flyer, I was really trying to do a, a kind of a, an, an oblique overview of all of it, and but rooted in motherhood rooted in having found a community of musicians and chosen family who value me the same way I value them. And it was really, I mean, I think in some ways I wrote it for my daughter, maybe not now, but in a few years, <laughs> you know, mm. like I hope she'll listen to it in a few years. And I think the last line, I am the mother of the evening star. I am the love that conquers all was sort of the most hopeful, empowered thing I've ever written. And the kind of um, almost, you know, free association of some of the lyrics in, uh, in the verses comes from a poem, actually an ancient poem, N not the actual specific, the words are, are mine and some of them JT's, my co-writer and my life partner and the father of my daughter. But I was, you know, I'm a bit of a, not a bit of a, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm a big nerd. <laughs> and I, um, I got really obsessed. Do you know about the Nag Hammadi scriptures? Yes. The, so these, like a lot of the Gnostic gospels were found there and also assorted writings from that era. So we're- Dead Sea Scrolls Exactly, stuff, right? we're, yeah. we're talking Dead Sea Scrolls era. And they are fascinating to me because of course so much of what we know, the, the kind of scripture that we know has been, so much of it has been redacted and edited by various 
generations of men who had specific biases, you know? And, you know, women's voices have been completely removed. They completely removed the Gospel of Mary, which is the most compelling gospel, in my opinion. And that is found, you know, in the Nag Hammadi Library amongst the Gnostic scriptures. But along with all these Gnostic scriptures were other ancient writings that were found. And one of them was called Thunder Perfect Mind. And it is this first person narrative, clearly in a woman's voice. And it ranges all over the place. You know, and it, it starts out like this. I was sent from the power and have come to those who contemplate me and am found among those who seek me. You know, I am a midwife and a woman who does not give birth. I am the solace of my own birth pains. I am bride and groom and my husband produced me. I am the mother of my father and the sister of my husband. He is my offspring. And it goes on and on like this. It's this incredibly modern, uh, incredibly sort of intensely radical feminist is what I would say poem. Hmm. And yeah. I remember finding this poem when I was 15, because again, I am a large nerd. And, <laughs> and when I tried to, I guess in the moment when I wanted to write my own story, which felt terrifying and overwhelming to me, I thought of that poem and I thought, well, could I, could I sort of come at it that way? And that's when I started sort of free associating things like I'm the wounded bird and the screaming hawk, you know, I'm the dove thrown into battle. I can roll and shake and rattle. I'm the moon's dark side. I'm the solar flare, the child of the earth, the child of the air. I am the mother of the evening star. And that's what my partner JT and I, we've always called Ida, our daughter, Ida Mae of our evening star, because she was born at exactly 7.49 p.m. Hmm on December 30th in 2013, and it was the coldest winter in 200 years in Wisconsin, and the evening star was particularly bright that night, and so we've always called her our evening star. Huh. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I was, I was trying to, in a sense, honor my own life experience by sort of not mythologizing it exactly, but exalting it in language, building a, building a monument of words that means something deeply personal to me yeah. that might not necessarily t translate directly to others, but hopefully that others could see their own stories within, if that makes right. sense, you know, because that to me is the magic and the alchemy of music and of songwriting is that the songwriter may have one intention for it and a meaning behind it, but whoever receives that music, whoever hears it, whoever resonates with it, as apparently you did, it takes on its own meaning, you know, for the listener and it transforms. Right. That's the final ingredient. You know, any of us who is making outward facing music, we are making it to be heard and to be interacted with and interpreted by other humans, you know? Right. And I love that about music. That to me is the most exciting, hopeful, that's as close to magic as I, as I know, hmm. and you know, I will, I have friends who have, um, you know, deep faith or spiritual practices. I'm, I guess I've always been a little bit more conflicted. I've always, you know, I would call, if I had to call myself something, I would say I'm a hopeful agnostic, hmm. but my sense of the spiritual and my sense of the divine and my sense of, you know, I think the role that music plays in my life is maybe similar to a role that uh, an organized religion might play in, in another person's life. It, for me, it just, it gives me the sense of connection and being part of something greater and 
that the whole is infinitely greater than the sum of the parts. And we can go all kinds of places when we sort of commune with one another musically and write together. We, we can go places we wouldn't imagine going on our own. And yeah. so, yeah, I think of all of that sort of the, the magic and the reverence that I feel for music and writing and creation, yeah. writing, but not just, I like to write on my own as well, but there's something very, very special to me about writing with my partner. And it's something that we actually didn't do for a long time. We've been dear friends for over 20 years and we've been a couple for 15 years. And we were in a band together called Birds of Chicago for many years and it still technically are, although we're on an indefinite hiatus. <laughs> but it took us years to write together because it felt terrifying to sort of put everything in the one basket, you know? Right. And, but once we broke through that sort of, that, that last barrier, it's been the most rewarding experience uh, to write together. And this whole record, I mean, the, my whole debut solo record outside child would would not have happened without him sort of encouraging me all along the way and kind of scraping me up when I felt overcome by it all and wow. and helping me keep going and so that song is really layered for me on so many levels I mean it, it taps into the the kind of path I started on as as a very young writer at 15 and it taps into the sort of my, the journey of my history and it taps into motherhood and, and it also taps into chosen family and partnership and loving connection and being able to choose, being able to choose a, a consensual love as an adult, which I was, you know, that was taken from me as a child, but hmm. I've been able to, to reclaim some of that childhood through becoming a mother and that is really healing. And there are a few things that you've said that, that, that kind of sound like you you see yourself as a link in a chain. Um, you know, you, you referred to motherhood as becoming an ancestor. I'd never heard that that phrase before, but it's it's really interesting to recognize your place kind of in, in a in a family chain, a generational chain. And then also the way you looked at kind of seeing an old text and finding some things to identify with in the old text and then moving to make your own music that someone would come and in turn identify with. Um, and as a creator... I'd be curious to know how you see yourself in, in that chain as you see your influences and those who are influenced by you. Um, who were you listening to? You mentioned Tracy Chapman, and I'd love to hear about some others who, who kind of, you know, were links in that chain ahead of you that now you're, you're kind of, you know, extending that now in, in your career. Well, my childhood, I mean, if we go back to earliest influences, the first music I heard was my mother playing piano hmm. and my mother singing. And my mom, you know, we had a very, very conflicted, troubled relationship. And I was taken from her care when I was about two and placed in foster care for several years. And then I went back to live with her and uh, her new husband, who eventually adopted me, and he ended up becoming sort of my, my primary abuser. But my mom, you know, she was a, a baby when she had me, and she was really suffering from postpartum depression. I think she was 17 when she got pregnant and 18 when she had me. Wow. You know, she was a baby and she didn't have family support and she wound up in a home for unwed mothers. And this was in 1979 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, which is at the time is, is you know, quite Catholic and 
definitely uh, does not, you know, the, the stigma and the shame for an unwed teen mother was strong. And then she was also an unwed teen mother, um, Scottish Canadian white teen mother who had a black child. And that was very taboo at that time. Mm. And so she just had a very rough, rough go of things. And her family were not there for her throughout this. And she was suffering from, you know, severe postpartum depression. And I believe her first psychotic break late, many years later, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but it was undiagnosed and untreated at the time of my birth. And I'm pretty convinced my birth was the, the catalyst for the onset of her schizophrenia. Um, and it was rough, you know, and I remember being scared a lot, but I also remember my mother kind of soothing herself with music. She was a classically trained pianist and she would go and, and play the piano whenever she was really upset. And I remember being aware that she was upset, but also being so entranced by the music that she played. Yeah. And she would always hum along as she was playing and I would hide under the piano and listen to her because I knew if I was hidden, there would be no conflict. You know, she wouldn't see me and there wouldn't be a conflict, but I could just listen. And that was the first, my first understanding of really the magic of music, you know, that I felt like I was hearing her heart. You know, she couldn't, we, we did not have a good relationship and she was not able to express sort of love or affection in inappropriate ways. But when I heard her play there, that, that kind of fed that need for love in me, you know, I mm. heard it in her playing and I can still, you know, I can still hum so many of the pieces that she played. She would play Furelise and she would play a lot of classical music, but then she would also just extemporize and kind of sing little snatches and hum along. And that was my, my earliest first musical influence. And then my grandmother, her mother um, was a Scottish Canadian woman, um, Dr. Isabel Roger Robertson. And she knew sort of endless creepy, violent lullabies and murder ballads from the old country. <laughs> and I loved them because they spoke to me because these are songs. I mean, I, I think of those songs, those oral tradition songs that are so often handed down by women within a family um, th that are sort of distilled experiences, you know, of the human condition. And I, I heard them as secret roadmaps and kind of kind of cautionary tales a lot of them and that I I think of that now I've come to think of those kinds of oral tradition handed down generation within generation often mother to children um, in so many different cultures and the specific culture that I knew as a child growing up was my grandmother who was Scottish Canadian um, but I've since learned about so many on my Grenadian side I've learned some of the the Berceuse Creole from that side, and they're so linked, the same thing, the same kind of hidden canon, women's stories, women's voices, women kind of giving each other warnings and roadmaps to safety, or just kind of encoded signifying tales. I mean, just, there's so many deep layers to that distilled sort of experience, wisdom, and knowledge in mm. in those oral traditions. and what I think of as the hidden canon. And I was obsessed with these songs and I was obsessed with her stories 
these kind of, you know, like songs like the Banks of the Sweet Dundee. It's of a farmer's daughter, so beautiful, I'm told. Her father died and left her 500 pounds in gold. She lived with her uncle, the cause of all her woe. But you soon shall hear this maiden did causes overthrow. You know, and it goes on about the uncles trying to force her into an arranged marriage with some wealthy older man. And she doesn't want to do that. And she's rebelling. And she's in love with a young, you know, plowboy or some such. And the uncle and the, and the older wealthy suitor conspire to kill the young man. And she ends up defending herself and defending herself essentially from a rape and killing this older man who is trying to claim her as chattel. And, you know, these stories are intense and deep and they're women's experiences and they transcend time because we are not unfortunately done with that kind of trauma as we now all know from the Me Too movement. I mean, I always knew, but there were a lot of people who didn't know. And now everybody knows, you know, and it's right. those stories were always telling those who took the time to listen that this has been happening, you know? I find it interesting that you talk about those kind of traditional type murder ballads and, and those type of things that you heard from your grandmother. Uh, as I understand, your music career began in Vancouver with a Celtic folk band called Fear of Drinking. But, yes! Oh my gosh, know, good research! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I read that and then I know that you and Trish Klein of the Be Good Tanyas had formed a group called Pogirl and, yes. and you had described that as uh, rural music with urban lyrical content played on old-timey instruments. <laughs> um, and you know, I listen to a song like Take the Long Way and I hear um, those kind of uh, building blocks of, of American music that kind of came over from the European and Scottish traditions. Um, but they also uh, have a certain modern sensibility to them. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how you internalize some of those traditions um, to then, you know, bring them as part of your own unique voice and how you as a songwriter kind of tapped into those uh, influences to make something that was uniquely your own. Oh, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I just followed my ears all along the way and you know, so when I left home when I was 15, it was like this explosion of of auditory freedom. You know, suddenly I could listen to whatever I wanted to and follow my ears wherever they took me. And I ended up meeting a really, I was very, very lucky, to, first of all, that I grew up in Montreal. And Montreal is a city that is just steeped in music and art it's everywhere you know i grew up with the jazz fest the montreal international jazz festival which is sort of i think the closest kindred is probably the new orleans jazz fest um and actually there are you know it's a similar kind of a melting pot of 
French influences, you know, English, European influences, African influences, Haitian influences, you know, in the same way that Haiti is so deeply influential and important to the music melting pot of New Orleans, it was to Montreal and is to Montreal as well. And, you know, I got to hear Oscar Peterson play for free in the park. And I did wow. not understand how special that was in one way. And on another level, I did because I stopped in my tracks and all my molecules rearranged, you know, and listened <laughs> to every note. And I got to hear Salif Keita, you know, and Umu Sangare and people like that, like in the park <laughs> playing for Jazz Fest, <laughs> you know, and I didn't, didn't even realize how how what a privilege that was because it was just normal you know right. in, in Montreal and in the sun we had Carabana which was like you know a huge festival celebrating Caribbean culture and pan-Caribbean culture and I would go and dance and listen to every all of the music I mean I was hearing so many different influences like when you talk about like building blocks of modern rock and roll or hip hop or jazz or any of it those are that those are all the building blocks of it and of course you know i was hearing some modern music like on my school high school radio things like that um i remember hearing missy elliott for the first time on my high school radio and just being entranced and um those influences all filtered through you know it's so i think it's so difficult sometimes when when we are writing to even be able to parse out like what is influencing this bit what is influencing that bit who knows yeah. you know we but what i do know is that none of us springs out of a vacuum and that we are everything all of our other senses take breaks but our ears do not you know huh. our ears never take breaks like we there are times when we don't talk there are times we don't you know we're not actively touching things when our eyes are closed and we're not seeing things but we are always hearing no matter what you know and i hmm. i think about that I, how many times sounds have seeped into my dreams or how many times i've woken from a dream with kind of a, a snatch of music in my head from yeah. and not knowing like did this come from my subconscious or was i hearing something in my sleep and i didn't even know it or you know like, it's so interesting i think about that a lot with um just with influences but also with like origins of melodies or origins of songs like how do we ever even know like did this really come from us or am I, am I filtering something that I heard when I was two and I don't remember <laughs> you know right. it's right. like that's I don't know it's just it's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing and and just how we are as a species how we pool knowledge and we everything that came before informs everything that comes after, you know? Yeah. I'm always interested to ask writers about, um, you know, you mentioned uh, birds of Chicago that you and your partner, JT Nero, um, I guess you, you said indefinite hiatus. So I won't say that, that you were in cause we'll say you're still in it, but, yeah. um, but you guys, you know, have some really cool songs and, and I think, you know, most were either written by him solo or you solo with, with just, you know, only a, a small handful of collaborations. But one of those that you wrote is Barley. And, um, you know, I listened to that record and it's just vocals, hand claps, percussion. That's it. It's super stripped down. And the wind that shakes the body will not shake me. The wind that shakes the body, it will not 
I'm always curious for writers, like when you're getting song ideas, when you're developing something, um, are you kind of hearing production or in this case, the lack thereof um, in your head? Like this is how this is going to sound as a record. Or do you kind of think of production and writing as two separate processes? That is such a great question. And I think sometimes sometimes when I write something, I, I am imagining a whole production around it. And, but other times I'm just hearing it very bare bones. All, it almost always starts very, very bare bones for me. Most songs either start just, I'm really, um, I'm a, I'm really into running. <laughs> I'm really into like long, like distance walking. I'm right. into distance running. I do a lot of like marathons and just long distance running. And the rhythm of running and the peace of running, there's something about, I'm someone who has a hard time calming and slowing my mind down. And I have a hard time with just straight meditation, but moving meditation seems to work a little better for me. Right. And so that's kind of part of my running obsession. And I, a lot of songs come to me on long runs, you know, where you're able, because I think it's so hard for us to find that that space and time for our intuition and our subconscious to sort of gift us with images and songs and snatches of, you know, threads to follow. And, and that happens for me a lot on runs and barley in particular is one that came to me while I was running. So it, when I wrote it initially, it was just a cappella with like body rhythm, you know? Right. Um, and it came out of, it was definitely, I was thinking about my grandmother and I was thinking about, you know, how when I feel small and terrified, I think about her and what a complete trailblaz trailblazer and kind of badass she was, you know? And so yeah. Yeah. whenever I'm feeling particularly terrified, I just try and channel her. And I think about how she always had the, the line in it, um, the wind that shakes the barley, it will not shake me. The wind that shakes the barley will not shake me. The wind that shakes the barley won't shake me. As my grandma told me, this I sow though that I see. That line, this I sow though that I see. Wow. It comes from an old Scottish like ghost story that she used wow. to tell me. Huh. And it's the story of a tailor who is kind of eccentric and probably what we would call on the spectrum now, where he's just very focused on his task at hand and kind of ignores right. everything going on around him. And there is this kingdom and this church that are being plagued by this terrifying ghost. And the legend has it that the ghost won't be vanquished until someone can spend the night in this church without running in fear. And no one has been able to do it. You know, all of the, the brave knights and various 
you know, macho men come and try to vanquish this ghost and they either die of fright or they run screaming. And so finally the, the, you know, the king of the land offers a reward if anyone can stay overnight. And the tailor decides, you know, he needs this money and so he will do it and he brings a sewing and he sits in the castle and all kinds of horrific, terrifying goings on occur. And he keeps saying, that I see, but this I sew. You know, he just keeps mm. sewing. And of course he wins, he vanquishes the ghost and he breaks the curse because he never ever looks up from his task. You know, he, no matter what is happening around him, he just keeps mm. doing the thing that he feels compelled to do. Wow. And I always thought, well, what a, what a beautiful, powerful metaphor, you know, for just sticking to your guns and following your own dream, no matter what is happening around you, no matter how terrifying or how many people tell you you can't do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, when I wrote that song, I was definitely trying, I was intentionally trying to pay homage to my grandmother and to those, that kind of hidden canon body of wisdom that she sort of brought forward and paid forward to me. And I was also like trying to make myself feel better at a time when I was a new mother, we were broke. We were on the road with our baby. I mean, I had Ida and three weeks later, we flew to the Netherlands, you know, and started a tour. Wow. And wow. it was insane. And we were, we were not, this was not, these were not bus tours. This was like poverty <laughs> subsistence touring <laughs> right. to get by, you know, and we had no plan B and it was terrifying. And I remember people saying things like, oh, it's so wonderful. You're bringing your baby on the road. Yeah. And like, I was like, yeah, I have no choice. I have no other plan. Um, and it was, you know, it was a terrifying time, but it was also an incredibly joyful time. And, but I was, I felt this becoming a mother. I just felt this deep fear for her and for where are where where are we where is our species going you know are we going to yeah. survive our adolescence as a species or are we going to self-destruct because we're in a precarious time we're on this precipice you know and and i think about you know we look at the history of the planet and there have been many mass extinctions and i feel real deep fear when i look at how close we are to making this world unlivable for our own species and not to mention all the other species we're taking out with us daily you know hmm. and it it's like when i became a mother it just all hit me so hard all at once yeah. and i was really really overwhelmed for a little while and really scared and really felt guilty about like what kind of world have i brought my daughter into you know yeah and what is she going to inherit and that's when i started thinking about my lineage more and thinking about the fact that as bad as I had it as a kid and as hard as I feel like things are sometimes, I have more agency and support and love and protection surrounding me than any woman of my lineage who came before me, hmm. you know, and they all survived far worse things than I have. And frankly, we all have that to draw from. It doesn't matter what, you know, our, our backgrounds or the geography of our families, our ethnicities, our personal experiences, whatever the story, every human on the planet now, we come from long lines of survivors. And, you know, that is a source of hope and strength to me now. You know, the, we all, like the story of intergenerational trauma 
is real, but the other side of that coin is intergenerational resilience and hope and creativity and managing to survive against all odds. You know, wow. that's why we're here. That's why we're all here right now. And so I was just trying to, I think in that, with that song, I was really trying to channel that. I was trying to channel all the mums who've gone before me and my grandmother and feel stronger in, in a moment of weakness, you know? There's there's even sort of a metaphor for what you're talking about, the fact that you were out there running, uh, presumably a, a marathon or training for a marathon at the time, which is incredibly impressive and a show of resilience in and of itself. Um, you know, Scott and I were both on the cross-country team together in high school. Oh my and gosh, you've known I, each other since high school? We have known each other that long. I love yeah. that. Oh. And, and we can still we can still handle each other, you know, uh, in, in so short, beautiful. small doses. But when I was running, the only song that would ever come into my head when I was running was John Jacob Jinkelheimer Schmidt. And I don't know if you know that song. Yes, John Jacob. Yes. And I'm sorry that if I'm going to ruin your next run with that. But if I had known that I could exercise the demon of that song by writing a new one, that I might have done that instead. The next I'd... time you go for a run, you're going to write a song. I've sworn it off forever because I don't want to hear John Jacob Jinkelheimer yeah, Schmidt in my head ever again. You've got to reclaim it. <laughs> that I, I go running every morning with my two 75-pound uh, German shepherds, and it is the opposite of meditating. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that sounds like a that sounds actually very joyful, though, in its own way. <laughs> Terrifying, but joyful. All right. Um, <laughs> Well, in, in 2018, you joined the musical collective Our Native Daughters that Rhiannon Giddens brought together. And, you know, you guys uh, have recorded some really amazing stuff, including uh, one of your originals, I Knew I Could Fly. I didn't know why. this idea of a collective now you know by this point um you know you had done birds of chicago you had done poe girl um but this is a little bit of a different situation where you're kind of bringing together four different people who are all writers who all are bringing a little something different to the table um and i'm really interested in how that idea of functioning as a collective um sparked you creatively as a writer Oh my goodness. Well, you know, it was an accidental collective, I think, because when Rhiannon first approached us all, she it was a one-off. You know, she was thinking, Smithsonian had given her this budget to kind of explore her idea of bringing together women of the diaspora to kind of excavate really songs from the minstrel era. That was her initial idea. Huh. Because there's so much incredible... Uh, original black creative work within that body of you know within that history and within that body of work from the minstrel and it's so painful and we've turned away from it for so long because of course it is um coupled with a lot of difficult 
racist crap like blackface minstrelsy for example right. i mean everyone was performing in black that was the first time you had integrated public stages except that of course both the white and black players were in this caricaturized horrific blackface makeup mm. you know and and it's so it's really hard to go back and listen to any of it and some of the lyrics are so horrific but then some of it is just exalt like these beautiful melodies beautiful lyrics as well and so Rhiannon was, you know, what she's such an incredible kind of excavator and preserver of history and reclaimer of American history. And she wanted to reclaim some of these songs, but, and, and she wanted to draw it together. She wanted to specifically have it be through the prism of black women and working and, and specifically black women who write on the banjo. And so she approached several of us, she, those of us who ended up recording together, Amethyst Kia, Layla McCalla, Rhiannon and I, but she also approached Valerie June. She also approached Kaya Cater, who's a wonderful um, Canadian, also a Grenadian Canadian actually, like me who grew up in Montreal. Um, she's a wonderful uh, young Canadian writer and beautiful banjoist, absolutely beautiful banjoist. Right. Um, and, Kaya wasn't available and Val wasn't available. She, you know, they, they were scheduled. The schedules didn't align it, but it was the four of us who ended up together in Bow Bridge, Louisiana for about 10 days. And what ended up happening was we just communed and we had so much to say to each other. And there was so much that we didn't have to say to each other. And so many kind of, you know, we had all experienced moving through spaces that have become quite whitewashed and where we have been and have felt at various times quite tokenized and or fetishized, you know, mm. and it, talking to each other about these experiences was so healing and even just being together and laughing about we've all been called by each other's names over years, and it's just, you know, we couldn't be more different, but that's just what happens when there's been so much tokenizing people it's hard for people to see nuance and to see the fact that we are not some sort of like monolithic conglomerate like we're all very different eclectic individual artists and there was something so joyful about banding together and then of course we just started writing we wrote and we wrote and we wrote and you know there was so um i knew i could fly Layla, that I really think of that as Layla's song. I helped her finish it, but Layla had the bones of that song for uh, for I think maybe a couple of years before we ended up working it, finishing it together, and recording it with our native daughters. And I remember her saying to me, at, like we we rented this Airbnb and we were all staying together, so it was like deep, deep bonding. And I'm a night owl, and so is Layla, and so we, we call each other our next life wives. And we stayed up till about three in the morning, finishing that song. And really, I mean, I helped her finish the lyrics, but that that song is that came out of her own, her bones and her experience and her love of Etta Baker and and something that, you know, she and I both think about a lot, like the kind of agency, even with all the various barriers that come up around, you know, gender and color and all of that stuff, we have so much more agency and freedom and kind of coalition and community and people pulling for us than someone like Etta Baker had. I mean, she stopped mm. playing her music because her husband wasn't into it. And that was in the days when it's like, 
you go in the kitchen and you make his meal and that's it, you know? And yeah. it's so different because there we all were in Bowbridge, three of us mothers, Rhiannon, Layla, and I, and our amazing partners were home holding it down, taking care of the kids, supporting us in our work, cheering us on, you know, doing their own work too. And we do that for them as well. Obviously we take turns, but that we had that, we had that kind of, we could get together and do this because we have that kind of support in our lives, you know, and Etta Baker didn't have that, you know, and a lot of the women that we admire and look up to as writers and all of the women in our lineage, lineages didn't have that yeah and yeah. it was like this incredible you know so we were really thinking about that when, as we were finishing that song and um yeah that was a beautiful i remember and layla was also wildly pregnant with her twins when we recorded that record <laughs> I, I, we were all like, Rihanna and I were like, we've never been that pregnant. We never had twins. <laughs> it's incredible. And so I was basically like, I will do anything. I'll rub your feet. Do you need a mango? Let me wash those dishes. Sit down. Like I was, I went into full on. That was when I was like, I need to become a doula one day. Cause I just am so entranced by this process of, yeah. you know, the gestating humans. Like what could be more sci-fi and miraculous? <laughs> right. Right. You know, coming back to your uh, Outside Child album, um, you have talked a bit um, during this interview and you have talked openly on stage um, about the trauma that you suffered as a child. Um, And, you know, people who listen to the record and listen to songs like fourth day prayer. I mean, there's a unflinching honesty about what you have survived. Father used me like a wife. Mother turned the blindest eye. Stole my body, spirit, pride. He did, he did each night. It's one for the hate that loops and loops. Two for the poison at the roots. Three for the children begging. I'm curious, you know, as a writer, there is a certain amount of catharsis that comes from writing, whether that be poetry or lyrics. Um, But often people who have experienced trauma are able to work through you know, you can never make it go away, but people are able to to deal um, in some ways through creativity and, and through art. Um, but there's a difference between somebody who has written these things down in their journal or it's it's private and, and it's something that other people don't know about versus talking about it on stage, putting it in your lyrics, putting it out there on on the albums. I'm curious for you if um, how how audiences react to that um, has any impacts for you in terms of your own healing process. And I guess what I'm asking is um, when you're writing lyrics or you're talking on stage, uh, that's kind of on your terms. But you are sharing these things about your life that are very personal and then whether it be fans or, or journalists or whoever maybe feel like they have 
somehow the right to just ask you about these things or, or, you know, ask about details of your life that maybe you don't want to share. Maybe you don't want to delve into certain aspects of that. Um, and, and I'm curious how that is for you in terms of a balancing act of allowing your music to be cathartic, but still having it belong to you in a unique way that's it doesn't feel, you know, violating from what other people do with it. That's a really, really great question. And I know it's um, different for every survivor. In my case, I made a really conscious choice to write about and publicly speak about those experiences. And I will make the caveat that while I am explicit about my history on Outside Child, I don't see that record as a record about abuse. Those were my circumstances that I didn't choose that I was dealt as a child. But what to me the record is about is really what I was trying to do, I think, is write my roadmap out of it. Like, this is mm -hmm. how I got out. This is how I was able to break that cycle. And I'm writing the whole record from, and, and Night Flyer marks that. It is the kind of the thesis statement in a sense. I am writing this record from a place of motherhood, of connection, of loving partnership, of loving community, of having found my voice as an artist and found a community that values that voice, you know, and that I value so deeply. And the whole record, everyone that plays with me on the record, everyone that, you know, my partner, Dan Nobler, who produced it, Yola, who sings on it, Aaron Ray, Ruth Moody, the McCrary sisters, all my band of brothers, you know, Drew Lindsay, who is literally my brother, he's my husband's brother, who plays the keys. Um, um, Chris Merrill, who plays bass, played in my band Poe Girl, played in Birds of Chicago and plays on this record. Jamie Dick, we've played together in Our Native Daughters. He played in Rhiannon's band. He sat in with Birds of Chicago at different times on the road. You know, these are my, these are my chosen family members. And I was completely surrounded by love and playing that, writing and recording these songs. And all of them use their gifts to uplift what I was doing because they believed in the project, you know? And yeah. when I went into the studio, I think I was still in denial about the fact that I was making the solo record. That's something that, you know, as you've pointed out, I've had a very long career. I've been doing this for over 20 years now, you know, and right. um, writing and, and, and performing and founding and touring with starting with fear of drinking then poe girl uh then birds of chicago different side projects like capital sunrays with graham lesh and amy helm and luther dickinson and jt and his brother drew and our native daughters you know all these different projects that i am part of and that i love all of these years i was never i was the thing i was the most terrified of was stepping forward in my own name you know, and telling my own stories in my own name. Yeah. It was terrifying to me because the way I learned how to survive as a child was to hide, to be self-effacing, to be very quiet, to make myself small, to not draw attention, you know? And it's a hard, that kind of habit of years is very, very hard to break. And also there's the feelings of, you know, as, as you talk about trauma survivors, that the deep sort of shame and feelings of unworthiness, those are hard, 
hard to dispel and they don't ever, in my case, uh, I don't think they will ever completely go away, but they can get smaller and smaller and smaller and you can do things in spite of them and you can live and love in spite of them. And they get smaller and smaller to where they don't interfere daily with your life, you know, and that is what I wanted to write about because that, you know, what, what I experienced, I wish it was just me, you know, but it's not just me. I'm one in three women, uh, you know, it's one in two trans or non-binary or intersex folks. It's one in four men, you know, it's it, pandemic. It's a horrific sort of self-perpetuating pandemic, you know, and my yeah. abuser, and I know this firsthand, I know this because my abuser was an abused child, you know, who did not hmm. recover intact enough to not repeat the cycle, huh. you know, and it's like, I just think about the work of art, the highest work of art, in my opinion, is to build and foster empathy and to connect people and I know that this doesn't change, this pandemic of abuse and violence and bigotry for that matter does not change unless we start talking about it explicitly, uncomfortably and continually, you know, and singing about it. And, and that's where you know, it's interesting. I feel like outside child in some ways grew out of the work I began with our native daughters where I could kind of couldn't close those floodgates. And for the first time, I wrote a song on the Our Native Daughters record called Kashiba about my uh, paternal sort of matriarch, great, great matriarch of my family as far back as we can go, because of course the story of my paternal family is one of kidnapping and um, enslavement, you know? And so we don't know the full history. We don't know where our ancestors specifically came from. We know that Kashiba was sold off the coast of Ghana. We know that she survived the Middle Passage. We know that she survived multiple enslavers and plantations, both in Trinidad and Grenada. We know that she ended up dying, still enslaved, on a plantation in the north of Grenada. Um, and we know that she was um, a highly prized midwife and that her enslaver sold her services to other plantations. You know, so, and I know that I exist because she was strong enough to survive all of that. <laughs> You know, and I know that my daughter yeah. exists because she was strong enough to survive all of that. Kashiba, Kashiba, you're free now, you're free now. How does your spirit fly? Bloody older, born in your bone, by the grace of your strength, we have life. You know, I met my biological paternal family as an adult. I met them when I was 30 years old. Um, and so that has been an incredible sort of journey of discovery and understanding the full picture as full as we, you know, as full as we know of, of my lineage. And when I was working with our native daughters and we were sort of communing so intensely over those 10 days and writing these songs, I kept thinking about Kashiba and thinking about that I got to be where to be doing this because of her, you know, and her ability to keep hope alive and 
pieces of her own family history and culture somehow alive in these unspeakable circumstances, you know? Mm, And I just really understood for the first time that my story, my history didn't spring up out of a vacuum, that I'm part of this continuum of this line that, as you said, this chain, you know, a chain and a link, a link and a chain of, of intergenerational trauma that's part of the story, but also unbelievably powerful intergenerational resilience, survival, hope. There have been songwriters and storytellers on both sides of my line, Hmm. you know, for generations. And part of my ability to survive came from my, that lineage, you know, came from when I think about my childhood, I hid inside of books. I hid inside of songs. I made up songs in my head. I would literally travel deep into my own mind, like almost outside of my own body when awful things were happening to it, you know? Hmm. And I, and I survived because of that. And I helped my little brother survive by telling him stories and singing him songs and helping. That's when I really understood the power of our imaginations, you know, the activism of our imaginations, how, Mm -hmm. how art can transform trauma into more into into art itself you know it can and that we can then pay that forward potentially for Mm. somebody else and maybe it won't you know maybe it's great but i know that songs save lives i know that words save lives and i know that words can also kill you know that they're powerful they're spells they're as close to magic i think as as i will ever experience and yeah, how well. we use them really matters. How we wield words matters, you know? Yeah. Incredible. You know, you talk about words and, and the power of words. Um, and, and on the other side of that, of course, is is sonics. And, um, you know, I listen to your album and I listen to a song like Montreal and I hear jazzy elements to it. Or I listen to Persephone and I hear a little bit of like Kelly Willis in there. Um, or the runner, you know, there's like the little black keys thing going on. I think with, with the runner, you sort of hear these little bits of, of things that, you know, they work together, but they're kind of almost seem like different influences. And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, sonically, how would you describe your own music? I don't ever try to, you know, I would say that I, I would, if I had to say anything, I think I would say that I'm an eclectic, you know, that I really follow my ears all kinds of different directions. And what I would say about the way that I approach recording is that I'm interested in casting the room well, and then letting the whole be greater than the sum of the parts. I would never dream of telling any of the musicians that played on that record what to play. I trust them, I trust their instincts, I trust their musicality. There is a kind of a telepathy that has built up over the years, certainly between JT and I, Drew and I, um, a lot of Yola and I at this point, you know, we were, we, Yola and, and my family, we hold up together throughout the pandemic. And she's been staying with us on and off since 2017, when she started coming to Nashville to kind of build her team. and right before she she delved into doing her first incredible record walk through fire and i know y'all talked to her i was checking out some of the other guests on your show and i saw her and it made me so happy 
Yeah. Um, I, I love her so much. And, you know, these are, I choose to play with musicians whose artistic sensibility I trust implicitly. And so, and I think I learned that. I think JT and I learned that together from Joe Henry. We did a record, Birds of Chicago did a record with him producing called uh, Real Midnight back in 2016. And that was the first time we made a record in four days. And it was the first time that we learned so deeply about the importance of casting the room consciously. And we did that in collaboration with Joe, you know, where it was like our close people. And then he brought in Patrick Warren and Jay Bella Rose. Uh, and it was just an incredible experience working with them. Um, and that's Jay Bellarose playing the drums on, on Barley that you, that you brought up earlier. Yeah. yeah. And I just, yeah. I mean, he's just such a deep and soulful consummate musician, just incredible as is his partner, Jen Condos. I mean, they're just stunning. Um, but anyway, that's a tangent, but, uh, you know, we cast the room and I, we did the same JT and I did the same with Dan Nobler who produced outside child where we, I knew the people that I absolutely wanted to be singing on there, like the McCrary sisters, like Yola. I knew that my brother Drew had to be in the room. I wanted Jamie to be playing on the record. I knew, you know, JT and I had written these songs together. We had to be in the room. Um, and then Dan brought in Joe Pisapia. And um, I knew Chris Merrill had to be in the room. My brother from forever, who's played in so many different bands with me. And, you know, it was this lovely communion. And it was this loving, really, of, of my chosen family. And I did not, it wasn't like a conscious, let's go jazzy with this one, you know, let's go kind of country with this one. And Steve Dawson came in and played pedal steel on Persephone. And he's, he's the first, I met him when I was 17 years old in Vancouver, you know. He was one of the first people to encourage me as a writer, as a singer. He gave me some of my first really serious stages to, to play on. Like he invited me to be part of a celebration um, of, of workers' rights and unions at the Vogue Theater in Vancouver. I think I would have been about 21. And I got to sing with an 80-piece gospel choir backing me up, you know. <laughs> wow. And just, he, you know, he's been a huge part of my journey as a musician and a writer and he, he and his family have wound up in Nashville so we now live a block from each other you wow. know and I knew he had to be in the room on, on get get have him communing on a couple of songs you know yeah and yeah. he just he heard Persephone he's like oh this is a pedal steel one for sure you know tap tap tapping on your window screen you gotta let me in Persephone Going back to your question about, you know, arrangement versus how you hear the song. I don't necessarily hear the arrangement. I hear the people I want to be in the room with me, you know? Huh. And I kind of think that's where I'm going now with the Outside Child Live Band. I've met this incredible circle of women here in Nashville, Larissa Maestro, Megan McCormick, some women that I met kind of just on my travels, Monique Ross and her sister Shanti Ross, who have an incredible band called Sister Strings. 
Milwaukee based originally, but they've now moved to Nashville and now Monique is my next door neighbor and our daughters are best friends and um, you know, and Ryan Medora, who's an incredible bass player here in Nashville. Um, Beth um, Goodfellow, just incredible. She's she's an LA based percussionist drummer. And I've been blown away. She's going to play her first shows with us at the Blue Room and Third Man Records. You know, I am entranced with all of these artists, these incredible artists and women. And we are now the songs are taking on new, what you heard, Scott, in um, uh, in L.A., you know, was like the new iteration of these songs, because, of course, the recorded version is one thing. But that's right. that's a that's a you know it's a static it's a capturing of a moment, and actually that was the moment of the coalescing the first coalescing of those songs you know with my with a close family of of artists that I have been learning from and growing with over a number of years, um, and now I'm in this new phase of touring the record and I'm getting to recreate it every night with these incredible women, and yeah, that's a whole amazing. other thing you know it's it's a different. I'm really excited about the third man show, actually, because I think we're going to uh, record it straight to vinyl. And I'm really wow. excited to have a document of, of this new era of these songs, you know, because, of course, song you, you guys know this songs grow and evolve and they change and and who's playing them shifts it and who's listening to it shifts it. And so that's why it's right. different every night. You know, I tell like the audience is not really the audience. I don't think of them as the audience. I think of them as participants in in the communion you know like we're all right. cho you've chosen to come and be part of this circle of communication and and energy transfer and when it's great it's like a full complete circle and it just goes round and round and nobody feels depleted you know mm, yeah. if you, you feel just re regenerated you know that's yeah. amazing yeah yeah well, the album is Outside Child. Allison, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This has been fantastic. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm, I'm just really honored that y'all have been listening. It's joy talking to you both. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 